Hey, you are listening to Rootbound, a podcast about plants for when you're stuck inside. You're listening to Rootbound. When you want to kick it, kick it Rootbound. I'm out here in my garden and I am looking at a very beautiful bumblebee that is flying around from red dead nettle to red dead nettle collecting nectar and pollen. Do you guys remember red dead nettle from a previous episode of Rootbound? Well, my garden is full of it at the moment, uh, really blooming good and the, and the bees of all kinds are really enjoying it. And that had me thinking today about pollen and just considering pollen a bit more and so I thought I would talk about pollen a bit today. And so for a reminder, pollen is essentially the sperm cells of plants. Uh, and in order for plants to reproduce, that pollen has to get from one plant to another, has to get from the male parts of a plant to the female parts of another plant in order to reproduce. And in order to do that, that's a little bit tricky because you got to, you know, pollen has to move from one place to another, sometimes quite far. And uh, in order to do that, there's actually two main types of pollen. There is anemophilus pollen and entomophilus pollen. And those two things mean wind-loving or insect-loving. So uh, plants like the hazelnut we talked about in the same episode we talked about dead nettle is an anemophilus plant. The, the, the pollen is in, in anemophilus, and that means that it spreads via the wind. Whereas red dead nettle, as you could tell by the insects I just am seeing all over it right now, uh, is entomophilus, insect-loving, and the insects, you know, the pollen sticks to the insects, and uh, the insects help move the pollen from plant to plant. Another thing I was thinking about with pollen is, is why, why do we get allergies from pollen? It seems kind of interesting. I mean, it's just, you know, plant pollen, it should be harmless. And uh, so I was reading a little bit about that, and I guess it, it, makes, it makes logical sense because pollen, you know, we think about it as just this kind of dusty stuff, but if you look at it microscopically, they're little tiny living cells. And if these other foreign living cells get into your body, sometimes your immune system decides to be proactive and say, hey, I need to nip this in the bud. And even though it's it's harmless, I think sometimes your your uh, immune system is, you know, not quite aware of that. And so it does what it can to rid yourself of these little foreign cells that have entered your body. So that makes sense. An interesting thing, though, that I learned is that we are mostly, and I think maybe, maybe in all cases, don't quote me on that, but in general, we are allergic to anemophilus plants, plants that spread by the wind, because that's the pollen that gets everywhere. You're very unlikely to get pollen from an entomophilus plant in your nose or whatever because that pollen is is sticky. It's meant to stick to the the uh, legs of insects and and not spread through the air. So it doesn't really uh, get in your body the same way as anemophilus plants. So anyway, sitting here in my garden thinking about pollen and uh, let's uh, maybe move on to our guest who also has some interesting things to say about pollen. The pollen grains, along with other allergenic materials, enter the bronchial passages and, falling on susceptible tissue, set in motion the allergic reaction. This causes inflammation, resulting in uncomfortable and potentially disabling constriction of the breathing passages. Hey, Steve, how's it going? It's good, Steve. How are you? 
We have a double Steve episode today. We do. Steve squared. Indeed. Uh, Steve, do you have a plant to share with us today? I do. It's a very fun plant. Um, My plant today is skunk cabbage. That sounds very fun. I don't think I know what that plant is. (laughs) Oh, it's a a very common plant uh, to the Northeast. It's one of those plants that you probably are not aware of unless you're out tramping around in wetlands and stream bottoms and all those wet forested areas that are common to the northeastern part of the United States. Very interesting. So I'll I'll probably have you describe it soon, but I'm curious why you chose such a plant, the skunk cabbage. Well, one, its name, right? Skunk cabbage kind of is just one of those things that catches your eyes. Um, It's neither a skunk nor a cabbage. It's definitely a plant. Uh, But the reason I chose it is ultimately... Uh, as a beekeeper myself, uh, it's one of the earliest blooming plants that produces pollen that the bees utilize, amongst the other fascinating things that the plant does. Oh, interesting. I, I you know, I'm, as uh, many listeners of the show know, I am also a beekeeper, but that's not one that I was aware of. So um, I should be paying more attention to the skunk <laughs> cabbage, I guess. Yeah, um, it's one of those plants that, again, it's, it's you know, it's in wet areas. Typically, you're not going to find them in your average backyard setting uh, or even urban suburban settings. You know, it's, it's on the fringes, uh, typically in the, the wet areas, the margins of streams and lakes and wetlands and things along those lines. Yeah, interesting. Well, I do live in D.C., which is quite a swampy area, so I probably could find it out here. <laughs> could be. <laughs> um, what What does it look like? Yeah, it's it's actually very plain, uh, but it stands out. So certainly as one of the first blooming plants in the springtime, um, it will stand out because everything's brown and dead in the spring uh, or late winter, and we don't get the color. So in the skunk cabbage, the flower itself is not really... Uh, a flower as we think of with petals and bright colors and, and things along those lines. It's a very drab plant. Um, the, the flower itself is actually a dark purple or maroon uh, color with some white or yellow uh, spots or flecks on it. Um, and then, of course, that's the, the what they call the, uh, the spathe, and it's a more of a, a hood type of a leaf that curls up into a point, uh, but inside that spathe is the actual, um, what they call the, the spadix, is the fleshy part of is the flowery spike. Uh, it's a little golf ball shaped ball with a whole bunch of little flowers on it with no leaves, just little, um, think of if you were to take a flower and you see the center of a flower where all the pollen is, well, in the center of this chunk skunk cabbage is this little golf ball shaped looking thing with all these little uh, yellow pollen sources. And the pollen kind of falls off into the base of that flower. And then insects like your bees and flies and other early uh, pollinators come out and utilize that pollen. Really interesting. Um, I, I think, you know, I think I know this, but <laughs> I know uh, some of my beekeeping knowledge uh, kind of comes and goes. But uh, maybe for the audience, why is it important to have pollen, and particularly early in the spring? Yeah, for bees, especially honeybees, um, you know, and us as beekeepers, uh, it's been a long, cold winter for, for those bees, you know, in some areas of the country are a little bit warmer than others. But as they get through the winter, um, they're starting to raise brood and young bees, and they need pollen as a protein source to raise that brood. So as they come out of winter, they're looking for the first available protein source that they can, and skunk cabbage is one of those. And there are certain attributes of skunk cabbage that allow it to be one of the first emerging pollen sources for those bees, um, which makes it very interesting. 
Yeah, that is super interesting. I just Googled what it looks like. It does look, it looks pretty like, looks kind of alien. It's not what you expect. Yeah. Plant. Yeah, it's, it's, it's really not very colorful. Um, it is unique in that it oftentimes is, it, it's blooming while there's often snow and ice on the ground. And, mm. and that's one of the neat features of skunk cabbage is that it generates its own heat. So even when everything is frozen around it, uh, that heat can warm up the area immediately around that flower up to about 70 degrees. So it melts wow. the snow around that plant. So oftentimes if you're out walking through wet areas um, in swamp, swamp, the edges of the swampy ground, you'll see these little pockets of melted snow where the skunk cabbage is starting to emerge and heating up that, that area around the plant uh, as it comes up. And then of course, it's one of those plants that the flower comes out first and then the flower goes away and it sprouts the, that cabbage like leaf, right? These big green leaves that, that uh, grow over the course of the spring and summer. And then it goes into dormition um, late summer, early fall, and the process starts all over again. So it's, it's very neat as a plant uh, and that it generates that heat. And of course, Per its name, if you were to ever break open a part of that flower, it to me it doesn't smell like skunk, but it does have that pungent, uh, decaying <laughs> smell to it. You know, it's just a, a strong, which is also unique to it because other animals won't eat it, right? Because of that pungent smell and, and its bitter taste that it has. So, it, it it's one of those just those plants that's very unique, kind of. Um, it's in the same family of like, I think it's the calla lilies, um, um, mm-hmm. those types of flowers that big green plants, but the flower itself is uh, small. Another one that, uh, people may be familiar with is Jack in the pulpit, which is also a oh, okay. wetland yeah. native plant, uh, to the Northeast. So it's that same family of plants, but that skunk cabbage, uh, it's, it's really neat to watch it. You know, you'll actually see some insects gravitate to it because of the warmth that it generates in addition to the pollen. Um, it's just all those functions really provide that first source of heat, pollen, you know, everything for the insects that are coming out. So it's very fascinating. That's really interesting. I, I was looking at my bees really early, like early February, and they were bringing in pollen super early and I was like, what, it, what is this? And I wonder if it was skunk cabbage. Cause it was, I was surprised. Yeah, it, it's um, possible. You're, you're several weeks South of me, um, in terms of climate and, and things along those lines. But yeah, I mean, there's very few plants that are blooming early. And when you look at the, the chronological time frame of, of plants blooming on the East coast, for example, um, skunk cabbage comes out first, right about the same time, uh, witch hazel comes out and witch hazel is, mm-hmm. is a native, uh, native and propagated shrub, uh, that you might find in suburban, urban, rural environments. And then you get into the maples and the willows and oaks and things like that. So yeah, it's very possible. I mean, you and I both know that, uh, honeybees can travel upwards of two or three miles to forage, typically not that far in the springtime, but yeah, if you're, if you have any type of uh, wet stream near you or uh, or wetlands, a stream, uh, swampland, you know, something like that. And a lot of these places do have them. I mean, you look at some of the urban suburban environments um, that are creating these retention ponds, right, to hold water mm-hmm, and development. Mm-hmm. And a lot of times you'll find skunk cabbage starting to grow up in some of those as well. So it's very possible. That makes sense. Yeah. We're pretty close to the Potomac here. And then there's also yeah. a... a, um, a uh, 
a river called Hunting Creek that, mm-hmm. that is a offshoot of the Potomac, and there's a few other little offshoot streams and stuff. Um, so yep. I'm gonna have to pay attention to it. That's that's really interesting. Yeah, I'm not I not, check out uh, the heard of that before. check out the wooded areas, like the the sparsely uh-huh. wooded. You know, they're typically not a wide open plant. They like some overstory to them. But yeah, I would be so. And the pollen itself is very uh, a very light yellow lemony uh, a light lemony color um i'm looking at my my notepad that's sitting here it's at nine and a half by 11 legal pad and it's that real mm-hmm. pale yellow color that's kind of the color of the pollen which is pretty interesting, interesting. i have to look i think yeah they, i think that's the pollen they're they're bringing in and i was like yeah i was like what what is that because yep. i definitely i think it was like before the maple because i have a maple in my backyard and yeah i think i was actually still I, I i haven't talked about this on the show yet and i will at some point but i was tapping my maple so mm. still didn't have the buds yet yeah and uh, and uh, there wasn't anything else up. I mean, one of the first things that appears in my yard, which I talked about a few episodes ago, was dead nettle. It's, yes, uh, you know, non-native, but that comes up super early. Um, but yeah, it was before that too. So yeah, that's cool. I'm gonna have to go go look for it. I guess I want. I wonder if I'm at the point where the the flowers are starting to go away. Um, in in you know probably later yeah in, the spring in, in your yeah. area that maybe you might still catch some because they they all come up you know, over a course of several days and weeks. So it's that time frame of, of the weather that's changing. Um, the other th- way you could find out too, besides the color of the pollen is look at your bees that are coming in. They'll actually get pollen on their heads and their backs because of, of the way the, uh, the spadix, that golf ball structure that's in the flower where the pollen is as that pollen drops down into the base of it and the bees are in there rooting around they get the pollen on their backs and they can't reach it so you'll you'll see the color on their legs but you'll see these stripes down their back uh and on their head which is from them digging around in that that spadix bowl to get the pollen so you can tell a lot just by observing what those bees are doing very interesting um, do you have any other fun facts or dazzling details about skunk cabbage? Uh, they don't have it in the South. Uh, <laughs> yeah, they. Oh. You know, I was talking to oh. a, a master beekeeper friend of mine down in Arkansas and similar conversation about uh, what the bees are doing. And he said, hmm, I've heard of it, but I don't think I've ever seen it. And he, you know, quick Googled it and found out that they typically, uh, they don't get it down in Arkansas. In fact, uh, down in the Southern states, like um, you get into Tennessee and Kentucky, um, they are uh, actually considered endangered or threatened because it's it's the southern ends oh. of its range. Um, but yeah, that's basically North Carolina. That whole latitude is about as far south as they go. So they don't get it in in Florida, Georgia, you know, those southern states. Um, but yeah, that's that's the neat thing, too, is it's really basically a, a northeastern type of a plant. They do have a western um, skunk cabbage as well over in Oregon and Washington, you know, Alaska and those areas. But, um, obviously we we're very familiar with it here in the, uh, the Northeast, but yeah, it's, it's a neat little plant that you know, the name kind of doesn't want you to look, you know, <laughs> it makes you not want to look into yeah. it, but, yeah. uh, it's, it certainly has its unique features. Yeah. Um, one, maybe, maybe you don't know the exact thing here. The thing that's most fascinating to me that you mentioned is that it generates heat. That's pretty cool. Do you know anything about that process? It, uh, what the heck is that called? Uh, thermogenesis, I think is what it's called. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Uh, yeah. Thermogenesis is, and it, you know, it's, it's just, it's able to create that heat and form that little pocket, you know, and it, what it's amazing to me too, is that 70 degree temperature. I mean, you know, it, yeah, it's nice and warm. It is, and and I've seen it in in flies and and honeybees where it's fifty degrees. It's 
borderline for them to be flying. Uh, but because of that heat, they'll actually some of those, especially the fly, the flies and the carrion beetles and things like that will sometimes spend the night in the flower because it, of the oh, heat wow. that it does it. So, um, yeah, thermogenesis is what it's called. And I'm not sure what the actual chemical process is that um, that causes the, to, to create that heat. But there's no other plant like that that I'm aware of. Um, you know, yeah, we're all waiting. I'm going to have to look into that. That's super interesting. Yeah. You feel like you could, like, in an emergency, like, put your tent up around a few of those. Things yeah, it makes you wonder. <laughs> <laughs> it makes you wonder for sure. I mean, that's yeah. – that's, uh, but again, yeah, that 70 degrees, I mean, the fact that it can melt ice and snow to, to create that little pocket of heat um, to bloom before anything else blooms and attract the insects to it. I mean, that's essentially part of it, right? If I bloom first, mm-hmm. I'm going to get pollinated before anything else does. So that's, uh, it's a very... Yeah, that's really interesting. It's And also like that heat is also very advantageous. Like you said, on those insects, it's hard for them to do their work right. when it's colder, but uh, right. but yeah, you can borrow some yep. heat from the plant. That's and, really and really and And it tastes horrible, so nothing eats it. So <laughs> it's a win-win all around. If you are afflicted with melancholy at this season, go to the swamp and see the brave spears of skunk cabbage buds already advanced towards a new year. There is no cant to them. They see over the brow of Winter's Hill. They see another summer ahead. Henry David Thoreau. Well, do you mind if I share a plant with you? Absolutely. Okay, so this plant, you probably you might know about this one, so humor me a little bit. You might know some of these details because you actually first introduced me to this plant. Ooh. Um, at the um, community apiary in Pittsburgh, uh, I didn't know about this plant before, but it oh. is the, the Jerusalem artichoke, ah. or also known the sunchoke. Yes. And I, I, as, as skunk cabbage, Jerusalem artichoke is neither from Jerusalem or an artichoke, and I'll talk <laughs> about that a little bit later. Yep. But... But the personal story is, is yeah, you know, when I lived in Pittsburgh and we were, you know, I was filming you for this documentary about bees that I made about you. So everyone should watch that. I'll, I'll link it in the show notes it's called Portrait of Urban Beekeeper starring Steve here, uh, the master beekeeper of Pittsburgh. Um, but there's a community APR out there and I was, you know, filming out there and learning about bees, just starting my bee journey. And I was asking what these really tall flowers were that look like sunflowers, but the flowers are really tiny. And Steve was like, oh, those are. Those are Jerusalem artichokes, and you can dig up and eat the, the tuber. And yeah. I was like, what? That's really interesting. And so I started Googling it, and I was like, oh, these are really cool plants. And so I asked you if I could, like, harvest some in the fall. And you're like, yeah, go ahead. So I pulled up a couple, and I ate some, and then I planted some in the um, this little, like, planter box in the house I was living in there. And I'm wondering, because what I know about them is that they don't go away now. <laughs> I'm wondering <laughs> if, like, the people who live there now have been fighting these um, Jerusalem artichokes or, or enjoying them. Um, but, I'll, yeah, I'll get a little bit more into that. But, yeah, they're... They're a cool plant, um, and I might even have some questions for you because there's one little piece regarding that I'm not clear on. I might speculate a little bit, but I'll ask you about. It. But let's let's get into some of the the basics of it. Um, the Latin name is Helianthus tuberosus, which is Helianthus is a sunflower, and mm-hmm. tuberosus is tubers, though they're tuberous sunflower. And the 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 sunchoke or the Jerusalem artichoke we're talking about is a is actually in the ground. It's it's like a it's like a little potato or it looks a little bit like a ginger to me. Mm-hmm. So that's why they're tuberous sunflowers. Um, those tubers are edible and I think they're quite tasty. And I've I've actually been growing them now myself for the last um, I think three years now. And um, they're a really cool plant to grow because they have just ridiculous yield. I think I've been growing them in like a four foot by four foot little bed. And I got, uh, last year, I uh, harvested 20 pounds of tubers from that four foot by four foot wow. area. 
And um, I did a little bit of research. Uh, there's a there's a book. I'm trying to find the name here. It's called Biology and Chemistry of the Jerusalem Artichoke. It's a pretty technical book, but in there, there's a little chart about different crops and their yield. And Jerusalem Artichoke is apparently only second to corn for its uh, kilo, you know, kilocalories or calories per meter squared. Mm-hmm. And actually for kilogram yield, if you're talking about just pure like material, it actually seems to be the the most productive crop. So this is showing 17,000 kilograms per hectare um, versus uh, potatoes, which would be next in kilograms per hectare. So it's a really, really massively productive crop, but uh, it's not it's not used as much. And there might be a few reasons why. You might know some of those reasons. I'll get into those now. Um, uh, it So the one thing that makes Jerusalem Artichoke kind of unique well there's several things but that that um that tuber it produces its its um carbohydrates in a, in a chemical called inulin mm-hmm. instead of starch right starches are based off of sucrose and glucose but inulin is based off of fructose right. um and the thing about inulin is that our enzymes in our stomach um cannot digest inulin mm-hmm. but the bacteria in your gut further down your digestive system can. Um, and so it, they, they say that sunchokes are actually really good for like gut health because it's a kind of like nutrient for like, you know, those little bacteria in your gut that mm-hmm. they don't kind of get this kind of food very often. But that can also lead to um, one of the other names of the juice and because sometimes it's called the fartichoke because, <laughs> because when you uh, eat them sometimes, especially if you're not used to eating them and your gut bacteria... Uh, start like getting very excited for this new source of material they don't normally get. Some people get like stomach discomfort. Sure. And um, over time, you know, eating them, that kind of goes away. But some people have like really like terrible pain and think that it's some kind of like, uh, like poisoning thing. But it's actually just like an increase in like the production of those little bacteria. And we talk a lot about gut health these days and like feeding your microbiome. And apparently sunchokes are really a great way to do that but you might want to start slow if you if you're trying them yeah um but now i i eat them pretty regularly and I, yeah it's they're good huh um that, yeah well i was gonna say it's interesting with the fructose because you know tying it back to the honey too you know honey is made up of fructose and glucose which is our simple sugars mm-hmm. and that makes yeah. it our stomachs are easier to to digest stuff like that so mm-hmm. uh and it's mm-hmm. interesting that that's one of your your favorite plants too because my second favorite plant probably is Maximilian sunflower, which is a oh, relative yeah. of Jerusalem artichoke. They're both in you know, yeah. same type of family. You know, the t- tubers, um, not as fat as your, your artichokes and not uh, the seeds aren't as uh, well. The seeds are probably about the same size, but yeah, same, same type of family where it's that, that tuber um, growth rather than oh, a root growth. I don't know that one. Max, that has tubers too. Maximilian yep. sunflower. Yep. Yep, tubers and rhizomes, basically. So I, they can get out of hand too. So similar to you, I planted some, and that patch gets bigger and bigger because the they put out the rhizomes, you know, to spread, and then those grow bigger into you know basically these little tubers. So it's a it's a neat little plant. That's same thing. I think it's um, what is they look? Yeah, they look very similar. They're very similar. Yeah, I'm looking at them now. Yep. Yeah, are they are the are the tubers also edible? Like the yes. Um, Oh, interesting. Yep. Yeah, but I think the you know, Jerusalem artichoke yeah. is a bigger tuber. I think it's more uh-huh. robust because um, that's more popular. The Maximilian sunflower um, is a native uh, sunflower as well, um, and and similar to to your artichokes. You know, you could however you want to you know cook, bake them, cook them, fry them, saute them, all that yeah. fun stuff. But um, 
uh, it's been a while since I've had them and I can't remember what they taste like, but if I remember correctly, it's probably a, a very bland taste similar to mm. the artichoke. You know, it's that, mm-hmm. I'll, I'll use the word starchy. Yeah. 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 What, one thing they say about the, the sunchoke is that some people, they really call it the diabetics potato because mm-hmm. it doesn't have those uh, glucose sugars. Yep. Um, you can eat them, uh, which is also pretty interesting. Um, I wonder if those Maximilian ones, probably they're also an inulin plant. It looks like they're very similar. I would think I'd have to do some more research into it, but yeah, that's their. I, yeah, I did. I, now that I read about it, cause I did a really deep dive a few, like a year ago about these plants. And I remember hearing there are a few, I think there's even one other one that has tubers mm-hmm. that are less common, but I think the sunchoke is just more prolific. And so it became the more common food crop. Right. Um, yeah, that's, that's really interesting. Um, as far as cooking them, I've frying them up, mashed potatoes, putting them in stews. I've like fried them and put them in tacos. They're they're really they're really tasty. I still have a bunch in my refrigerator from uh, last year because they're also super cool thing about them is that you know when the when the plants die back, the big sunflower parts die back. Mm-hmm. Uh, you can I cut them off about two feet tall mm-hmm. and you just leave them in the garden, and that's where you store them all winter. You just pull them up when you need them. As long as the ground's not frozen, you can just pull them out. Yep. And and a side note to that too is that when you leave those stalks like that, you're providing wintering cover for a lot of our native pollinators. So that's oh. they will over overwinter in some of those those stalks and stems and and things along those lines. So, oh yeah, that makes a lot of sense because you know the little hollow place now that you've left for yep. them. Yeah. Yep. Oh, that's great to know. I've been doing that for a few years and didn't realize. Yeah. How, <laughs> See how that? That might be. Yeah, that's great. Um, the one thing I was going to ask you, if you know, I, I, I meant to look this up and I think I've looked before and couldn't find a good answer is like the sunchoke basically propagates via the tubers. Mm-hmm. And I haven't really seen them like propagate via any kind of seed activity, but they still have flowers and they still, you know, have nectar because the bees love them. So right. curious about like how that works with their seed. You know, I, I would think that there were, they, the seed would have to do, it, it obviously plays some role in the reproduction of it. Um, I know my seeds don't last very long because the, the mm. you know the the goldfinches and things like that come in and just clean mm. clean house. However, I do know that I have had some Maximilian sunflowers pop up four to five feet away from the bed where they're planted. So clearly, that's not from a rhizome because mm-hmm. you know typically when you get those uh, rhizome plants, the the bed grows a little bit every year. It gets bigger and bigger. Yeah. It doesn't yeah. it doesn't just skip five or six feet. So um, yeah. my guess is that there was probably some seed that got dropped by a bird and started and picked up. So that makes sense. Yeah. So I, I, it seems like a plant, it's like less, it's less interested in its seeds, but it needs a little bit of that seed yeah. propagation, but it does a bit better. Right. Well, don't forget they're, they're yeah. perennials as well. Right. So they yeah. build the, you know, a lot of their growth comes from the root base, not from the, mm-hmm. the seeds like you do annuals and, and things along mm-hmm. those lines. Mm-hmm. So uh, that makes sense. Yep. Let's get into the name Jerusalem artichoke because I find this super fascinating and you might know some of these stories, but um, it's really interesting because like I said in the beginning, it is not from Jerusalem and it is not an artichoke. Mm-hmm. It is a sunflower native to North America. Um, and so how did it get that name? Um, the artichoke part is probably the easiest part to explain is uh, during the 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 journeys of Samuel de Chaplain, the famous French explorer. He was up somewhere in Nova Scotia and he saw them and he said, they kind of taste like an artichoke. <laughs> and that really stuck. I never get, I don't get the artichoke <laughs> taste at all. Yeah, that's, that's <laughs> a different, I mean, artichokes have a, I'll say they're, I don't want to say they're bland, but uh, yeah, it's, 
Uh, yeah, I, I. But anyway, that apparently stuck because they're always called an artichoke. Yeah. Um, uh, and you know, we call them sun chokes because I think people realize this Jerusalem part was confusing, and so they they took the choke part and called mm-hmm. them sunflowers. And sun choke is the name that is kind of more common now. But the Jerusalem one, I had always heard first how this happened is that um, the story was is that someone brought them back to Italy and they started growing them in Italy, okay. and then they ended up going to. Uh, uh, you know, the UK where these people spoke English and there was a mispronunciation of the Italian word for sunflower, which is girasole. Uh-huh. And the idea is that an English speaker said, oh, a girasole artichoke, a Jerusalem artichoke, and they didn't know what girasole was. <laughs> and that's what I thought for years. And it makes a lot of sense. It does. <laughs> but, but then I was reading that they started being called Jerusalem artichokes before sunflowers made it to Italy. Oh, and so the time frames don't work out. And I was like, wait, then why did they get this name? And the only other explanation is, and this is, seems to be what people think is the case, is that the first place they really ended up in Europe was somewhere in the Netherlands where there was some botanist growing them. And he shipped them to some people in, in London. And he was from a town in uh uh, the Netherlands called Ternoisen, which is T-E-R space N-E-U-S-E-N. And the theory is, is that people like, you know, working in the docks didn't know the word Ternoisen, but if you put those together and think that the T looks like a J and you're, you know, someone who only speaks English back in the 1700s or whatever, you know the word Jerusalem, you don't know the word Ternoisen, and they just started right. calling them Jerusalem artichokes and it right. just like caught on and spread. And like they got started being called that really quickly, which is really fascinating to me. Um, the other interesting thing about them is their name and they're either always called Jerusalem artichokes or in French speaking world, they're, they're called Topinambur is the name. Okay. And this is another name that is completely wrong. Yeah. (laughs) Topinambur is, is related to the name of an indigenous tribe in Brazil, which is nothing to do with that. But apparently what happened in this case is that Around the same time that sunchokes started to be sold at markets in France, a French explorer, colonialist guy, brought a bunch of these native people from Brazil to Paris. And the people in the markets were trying to cash in on like this popular thing. It's kind of like, you know, you know, a co-branding thing. Of, yeah. Like, marketing your product with something popular. And like everyone was really excited that there was these like native people in, in Paris and they were the Topinambur people, and they started just calling this other plant that's from somewhere over there, according to the Europeans. Like, oh, yeah, it's from the same place. They started calling them Topinambur, and still to this day, that's what it's called in French, and a bunch of other languages are based off of that, and it's completely wrong. Yeah. Hmm. (laughs) And then the other thing that I thought is super interesting about this is, is, you know, there are some plants that that have, like, kept their native name, and we, we use those, but this is one that... I was trying to figure out, like, well, what was it called? It's not a Jerusalem artichoke. It's not a Topinambur. Like, what is the real name? And there's, as far as I can tell, if someone else out there knows some more stuff about this, I'd love to hear other, like, native names for it because I'm interested in that. But there is one reference. So Champlain is is is, is uh, given credit as being the first European to eat them. But there is a reference to this guy named Thomas Harriet who was with Walter Raleigh. And he, he kind of... Didn't he kind of like? Um, I have the quote here. He he says there is a white kind of root about the bigness of a hen's eggs, um, and they're not so much cared for by us. So he basically like <laughs> didn't like them, and so didn't get credit for their for like uh, understanding what they were. 
Um, and that's before about 40 years before Champlain, but they called them in this, uh, uh, you know, Algonquin speaking people around, uh, North Carolina, Kaishuk Pinauk, which is probably sun root, mm. which makes a lot of sense. Right. So, um, that's really interesting. Um, that's kind of a really interesting story about this name of this plant, a plant that has all these names that are just all completely wrong. Right. And, uh. But uh, yeah, an interesting history and something I really fascinated, and I love growing them. So thank you for introducing them to me. No, it's that's uh, you know, it's funny when you start to look at some of these plants. Huh? I mean, the common names that we call them, and how incorrect some of the common names are. Yeah. And you know, it just it made me look up Maximilian sunflower too, just to see uh, what it is. And and some of this is it was named for the naturalist Prince Maximilian of of Viet Neurfeet, Germany. Who led an exp- oh, okay. who, who led an expedi- expedition into the American West in the 1830s? So oh, interesting. So they're a little bit further west of a of a of a plant. Yeah, yeah. So so there's there's you know I'm gonna have to look up common names for skunk cabbage too because I'm sure, um, <laughs> like you said, you know we there's the true names, there's the names we give them, and and the stories behind that are are kind of funny as to how they got to them. I mean because. You know, I, I think a skunk cabbage. In, I mean, I'm as, I'm assuming whoever discovered skunk skunk cabbage. Yeah, I can't talk today. Whoever <laughs> discovered discovered skunk cabbage obviously must have had a run in with a skunk. Otherwise, it would have yeah. you know named it that. But um, yeah, it's just kind of interesting that the the histories behind all that and kind of makes you you know at least for me anyways wish that I had more time to to dive into stuff like this. You know, I'm an avid birder. I'm a uh, you know a trained wildlife biologists through education and some jobs and stuff like that. And you know, you get, you really get into some of this and you start to look at it and your list of favorite plants becomes longer and longer and longer. Yeah. You're, well, you're describing the whole reason I started this podcast because I've been going down that uh, journey and learning more about plants. And it's really, I mean, what I've discovered is like, for me, every episode, I have a new plant I need to talk about and then I have to learn about it. And inevitably all these plants have something super fascinating and then having someone else come on like you and talk about a plant, you learn something new and it's a really nice excuse to spend, you know, a few minutes with somebody talking about plants. Yeah. So thanks for joining me. I appreciate the opportunity. And we're back here out in my garden again. And uh, now I'm looking at my three honeybee colonies I have in my backyard. And I thought I would go get a little closer and take a look to see if I can see any pollen coming in. I think it's a little bit late for the... Uh, skunk cabbage pollen but bees are always bringing in pollen and it's really cool if you get a chance to look at bees coming into a hive and looking at their legs as they come as they fly in they will often be full of pollen and you'll see these two little lumps of pollen on their legs and it's really cool to see the different colors coming in and as steve mentioned you can often tell what kind of plant they've been visiting by the color of that pollen oh yeah i just saw one fly right in legs full of pollen Really cool. Let's see if we can maybe hear them. I'm going to put the microphone really close. Isn't that a great sound? (laughs) Not everyone loves that sound, but beekeepers do. If you ever get the chance to uh, hang out with a beekeeper and a beekeeper like and let you put on the whole beekeeping gear and open up a honeybee hive. One really cool thing to see is the pollen inside a honeycomb frame. Often bees will have entire frames that are 
where they're storing the pollen. So if you look at this frame of honeycomb, it'll be full of all these bright different colors of reds and oranges and yellows, filling up all of them. It's like a mosaic of beautiful colors. So Google that, or even better, hang out with the beekeeper, see if you can help out for a day, and see that it's a really cool thing to observe. And uh, as we sign off for another episode of Rootbound, maybe we'll just let the bees buzz us out. Here we go. My guest on this episode of Rootbound was Steve Rapaski. Steve is a master beekeeper based in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. You can learn more about Steve at his website, which is meadowsweetbees.com, and he's also on Instagram. Steve also stars in a short documentary I made a number of years ago called The Portrait of an Urban Beekeeper. You can Google it, or there will be a link in the show notes. Rootbound is hosted by Steve Ellington. That's the other Steve. Music by Christian Kriegeskota. Fake ads by David Lani. Rootbound is a podcast about plants for when you're stuck inside. But if you can go outside, may you have beautiful weather and no allergies. Kick it Rootbound!